This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My talk is entitled Tackling the COVID-19 Pandemic, Year One of a Frontline Provider and National Advisor. I'm an emergency medicine physician and a critical care physician, and this talk's going to be a uh, largely a reflection of my experiences over the past year. I'm going to discuss some lessons that I've learned and uh, and pr- hopefully provide you with some new information about what um, how we can do better, how we can uh, address issues in the pandemic, and um, provide some personal experience on that. In terms of conflicts of interest, I have uh, I served on the Biden Harris COVID nineteen advisory board in the fall. And I recently had a grant fund for funding from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to address COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. And these are the three, uh, the themes and goals of this talk. I'm going to describe the, my experiences and the experiences of others over the past 15 months. And I'm going to describe it in three phases. I'm going to discuss three major issues with in terms of research and and hopefully uh, describe some action plans to address these particular topics. The first is addressing the effects of the pandemic on the mental health of frontline providers. This was a huge issue, has been a huge issue, and I'm gonna uh, talk about that for, for the beginning of my talk. Next, I will move into talking about helping under resourced communities that uh, that were hit particularly hard during surges, COVID-19 surges. And these communities had a, a very difficult time um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm going to talk a, a little bit about that, give my perspective on how we can address that issue. And then I'm going to finish with, in terms of phase three, I'm going to talk about equitable distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine especially getting into the topic of vaccine hesitancy, which is a a major issue across the country. To lay the, kind of put the landscape out there, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, emergency departments, but emergency departments are really the front line of care, of of critical care, and have been the front line of critical care for the the pandemic. At at times before the pandemic, um, the Emergency departments can be very chaotic environments. They, you know, patients get brought in with very little information. Pre- they are, are often critically ill, and we don't have, have a lot of data on them. We're not often able, if they're so critically ill that they can't speak, we're not able to get a lot of history from them. And uh, we take all comers uh, 24-7. So at times we can be hit with a, a, a big load of patients and that leads to a sort of an, again, an inherently chaotic environment. And so along with intensive care units, the EDs have, and their staff have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We really have, uh, in terms of the emergency department and the intensive care unit, we really have had a uh, frontline burden uh, and uh, and you know the honor of 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 serving on the front line for for this pandemic. So the first phase of the pandemic 
was really the uh, began in in sort of February and extended through May from my from my perspective. And this was right at the beginning when we were just hearing about reports of uh, of cases coming through. There was very little information out there. And uh, we at the beginning of the pandemic, we we suffered severe shortages of PPE. We had very limited testing. We were unable to to get answers right away about whether patients had COVID-19. We had really no direct treatments for COVID-19 for critically ill patients for COVID with COVID-19 other than our standard support of mechanical ventilation, oxygen, and uh, other standard critical care treatments, but really, really had no treatments other than what we typically do to support patients. A lot of emergency departments were faced with overwhelming surges of patients, and um, we also noted infections and a few deaths, unfortunately, in emergency department personnel across the country. Uh, and then lastly, there was this issue of unknown transmissibility. Really did not have a, a lot of information about how, in, how transmissible COVID-19 was, how, how in terms of day-to-day working in the emergency department and working in the intensive care unit, whether we were going to be uh, in, in, get infected with COVID-19. Um, there was just a lot of, there was just not enough information out there. And all of this really led to deep effects on frontline providers. I remember, I distinctly remember being in the e, in the emergency department that those first couple of months in, in March and early April, and that it, it, the uh, environment, working environment just transformed from, Usually, the pre-pandemic, the ED was, you know, very worked very hard, but it was very jovial. People would uh, talk talk a lot all the time. We would sh- share uh, meals in break rooms. We were um, we were, you know, it was, it was very uh, very. I wouldn't say jovial, but there was a lot of interaction um, uh, in the. In, in the staff in the emergency department. In March and April, in the early parts of the pandemic, the, the emergency department took on a, a bit of a, a, a somber tone. We, we were uh, affected by all of these factors that I've listed here. Um, it was a, an acute, dramatic change in sort of our work environment. And so I got together with some investigators, other emergency physicians at other academic centers, and started a couple of studies to look at the effects of the pandemic on the mental health of frontline providers. And I'm going to describe these two studies that that we did. The first one, um, which was in, in, uh, we started in April and continued it through the beginning of May, we looked at 426 emergency physicians at seven emergency departments. Most of them were here in California, but we also included uh, colleagues in New Jersey, Camden, New Jersey, as well as colleagues in in New Orleans at LSU. And we basically uh, performed serial kind of surveys of their with specific instruments to measure 
a few outcomes in terms in terms of, of the these emergency medicine physicians. We were looking at trying to measure their at stress and anxiety that was induced by the COVID-19 pandemic using uh, some scales to measure that. We're trying to identify what were the particular stressors that they were facing. And then lastly, we wanted to come up with some answers or ways to mitigate against that stress. And, and hopefully we could provide some answers to institutions as to measures that they could use to mitigate to hopefully relieve some of that stress that they were undergoing. And so what we found was that there were across the board moderate to severe increases in their stress and anxiety at work. We found substantial increases in emotional exhaustion and burnout, which is already, burnout is already a big issue in emergency departments emergency medicine physicians and emergency nurses are among the highest risk medical personnel for burnout. And um, notably also, we found real, very substantial effects on the home life, on stress of stress in terms of the home life for these physicians. We've, um, they, the physicians noted market changes in their behavior at home. Um, over three quarters of them reported that they were less likely to, to hug and kiss their, their loved ones. Um, a lot of us, I'd say most of us, would, would uh, immediately upon getting home, we would jump in the shower and sometimes we would shower outside. And, and uh, you know, because we, we just were super concerned about transmitting um, COVID-19 to exposing our family members to COVID-19. Quite a few of us um, would stay in hotels and, and other uh, places away from home uh, during the early parts of the pandemic. And then um, they also noted that friends and family uh, would treat them differently. They were afraid, some of them were afraid to, to come in contact. And um, I, I noted and multiple people noted that um, you know, whereas in addition to the sort of uh, decreased uh, interactions with friends from the pandemic, there was a, a, a little, there was a, an increase in, in people's hesitation to be around you. So um, these were, this is a scale of the, um, the concerns that the emergency medicine physicians um, expressed the, the top of the screen here, I think it's cut off, but not far and away, the number one concern was the availability of, of personal protection, protection equipment, PPE. That was far and away the, the greatest concern in the early part of the pandemic. The next major concern was our ability to diagnose COVID-19 cases quickly. Back then, we were limited in the number of uh, COVID-19 tests that we could send from the emergency department. And in some cases we were, we couldn't send uh, a test. And even when we were able to order the test, the tests would come back two to three days later at, at times. And, it, and that makes it really difficult to manage a patient in the emergency department. When you, you can't really confirm the diagnosis with a test, it's, uh, it makes it extremely difficult. 
The other concerns were exposing family members to the virus from their work in the emergency department. There was a lot of concern about co-workers who had been infected with COVID-19, concerns about having to undergo quarantine, and then uh, just a lot of uh, other concerns that uh, were throughout the population as well, like the social isolation factor. All right, so far and away, the biggest concern was PPE. So in terms of mitigation measures, in terms of the recommendations from this first study that we uh, we gave was far and away is we got to make sure, we had to make sure that people had adequate PPE, that there was an, enough supplies and that people could have faith in their ability to have PPE in, on the work site. The next measure that we recommended or that physicians recommended and that we put forth is with to, to develop more rapid turnaround testing in the emergency department. In other words, uh, we can't wait three days for somebody for somebody's COVID-19 test to come back. We need it, you know, that that day or within hours. Um, we also uh, wanted testing at, at our discretion. We didn't want to have to go through and ask somebody else whether we were allowed to test a patient for that. Um, we wanted better communication about protocols uh, and also assurance that if we were indeed to get infected and then we had to undergo quarantine that we would be able to take the leave, adequate leave for that. Um, the second study that we started um, was a, a, a more of a national study. This was in conjunction with the Centers for Disease Control. And in this study, we looked not only at emergency medicine physicians, but we looked at nursing staff. We looked at social workers in the emergency department other staff in, in the emergency department, we sort of took a comprehensive look at people working in, in the ED. And we looked at a lot of the same measures. And this was this study was at a, a, a later point in time. It started in May and it continued uh, through November. We looked at some of the same outcomes as in the previous study, but we added a few things. We looked at um, risk for post-traumatic stress disorder from their work in, in the emergency department during the pandemic. We looked at uh, the mitigation effect of providing testing of, of workers in the ED, um, serial testing for COVID-19. And we looked at, at whether that increased testing of people working in the emergency department um, would relieve some of their anxiety. And so what we found in this second study was, again, moderate to severe anxiety across the board. Basically, everybody was a, had increased anxiety in the workplace during, during the pandemic. Um, notably, uh, there, again, this was 20 sites across the country. Some of these sites had, had very high surges of COVID-19 cases, and notably the, the the effects on anxiety were about the same in surge sites as in um, other sites, indicating that it's really a pervasive effect on uh, emergency department personnel. Approximately half of, of the personnel in, surveyed and interviewed expressed severe emotional exhaustion and burnout with female gender having um, higher levels of 
being associated with higher levels of emotional exhaustion. Um, we found that approximately 20% of our personnel were at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. And over half of them had at least one symptom, about two thirds of them had at least one symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, such as uh, nightmares, a feeling on edge, um, avoiding triggers or feeling numb or or feeling guilty. Um, and then finally, we did note that serial testing of pro providers did provide some relief of anxiety to the uh, personnel um, by knowing whether they were positive for COVID or knowing whether they had antibodies for COVID. Um, that helped relieve some of their anxiety. So one of our conclusions from this study was that we need needed increased testing of, of uh, personnel, personnel in the emergency department. And again, these were uh, the, the summary of our uh, two studies in terms of mitigation factors, things that institutions could do to help relieve the anxiety and, and burnout in, in uh, emergency department personnel. So again, it was PPE, increased testing, of, of patients and in, of providers. We also, there was a big push for increased consultations with, for mental health, to promote mental health resilience and assurances that they can take leave. But as everybody knows, the ultimate mitigation measure for COVID-19 was, is really COVID-19 vaccines. And since We've been vaccinated. Most of us were received our vaccines in December and January. The anxiety has really declined precipitously. So now I want to move into the second phase of the pandemic and discuss a uh, another issue, specifically the issue of poor communities, uh, under-resourced communities, and how they struggle to deal with the pandemic. And this phase, which was from June to about October of last year, for me at least, um, was characterized by we had we started to getting getting more PPE, so that was becoming less of an issue. Um, we had two two new treatments for COVID-19, which were dexamethasone and remdesivir. And we had uh, some more information about how to treat our critically ill patients with COVID-19 um, with in terms of ventilation strategies and things like proning, which basically is putting the, the patient from a, a, line, a line on their back to lying on their stomach while they're on a ventilator. Um, we had improved diagnostic testing in terms of we, we would get COVID-19 tests back more rapidly, and we had there were much more available. Um, but you know, this this phase was characterized by catastrophic surges in, across the country. There were just various communities that were being overwhelmed uh, with with COVID nineteen. We here in, in the Bay Area never really had that, fortunately. But um, a number of communities across the country were suffering catastrophic, severe surges of COVID-19. And I'm, I'm gonna describe my experience with that in this phase. 
So I'm from Brownsville, Texas, which I don't know if you can see the cursor here, but is the very southern tip of Texas. It's the southernmost point in the continental United States. It's kind of on on a parallel with uh, southern Florida. My house is literally a mile from the from Mexico. I could, as a youth, I could walk to Matamoros, Mexico. On July 4th of last year, I received a call from uh, a friend who's a congressman in Brownsville, Texas. And he he described a, a catastrophic situation occurring down there. I had already heard on, through various people and on the news that South Texas was being overwhelmed with COVID-19. And I know my community down there. Again, I have large extended family down in, in Brownsville, Texas. My father, who was a, a, alive at that time, lived down there. My brother, and I have a, a lot of cousins and just a huge extended family down in, in Brownsville, Texas. And he called. So my friend called me to, to ask if I could come help with uh, in the hospital down there. And they were having a, a major surge of uh, COVID-19. Another point about Brownsville, it's, it's right on the Gulf Coast. And the day after I arrived, or a couple of days after I arrived, a, a hurricane hit. And this is the uh, a hurricane uh, tracing. This is the path of, of the hurricane. I didn't draw this with a Sharpie like somebody else that you may know. Um, and Brownsville is very tropical. You can see the palm trees here. Um, a couple of things, and, and this is the key point of this part of the talk is that Brownsville is a very poor community. Um, it's population of, of Cameron County. Brownsville is the largest city in Cameron County. Population is about 400,000 as compared to San Francisco, uh, which is about 880,000. Close to 90% of Brownsville is of Latinx uh, heritage or ethnicity. And uh, the income, the me median income in Brownsville is less than $10,000. As compared to San Francisco, where the median income is about $140,000 per year. Brownsville is the second poorest community in the country. Um, this is downtown Brownsville with uh, the annual Charo Days Festival. This is downtown San Francisco. So I'm going to talk a, a little bit about how that under-resourced area affects the care during the COVID-19 pandemic. Another important point in terms of Brownsville is that it's very pretty far away from a, another major city. So San Antonio, which is up, up here, Brownsville's down here again at the bottom of the tip, tip of Texas. San Antonio is about 300 miles away uh, from Brownsville. And in Brownsville, there, there are, and in Cameron County, there are four hospitals. And, and uh, there's one hospital that has a, a small small res, residency. And in Brownsville and in, in Camry County, there were at that time in July, there were a total of six intensive care unit doctors. This contrast contrasts with the Bay Area in San Francisco, in which there are, there are at least 16 hospitals. There are multiple hospitals that have very robust academic residencies. There's 10, 10 of them, at least. And uh, I surveyed various hospitals and came up with that there are, at, there are at least 200 intensive care unit doctors in San Francisco. And if you count other doctors that can 
that can provide critical care support, there's probably close, closer to a thousand. Other disparities, I got down there in the middle of July. I, I walked into the hospital. Um, nobody had really met me. I had obviously uh, talked to them by phone and was put in charge of a COVID-19 intensive care unit there. It was sort of a makeshift ICU that um, they had uh, put together because the hospital was simply overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. So at this hospital, which was a 240-bed hospital, there were between 150 and 180 COVID-19 patients and there were at least 50 to 60 of those COVID-19 patients were critically ill that belonged in intensive care units. There were two intensivists. Each of us were operating solo um, to take care of these 50 to 60 critically ill COVID-19 patients. We had limited consultations in terms of other, other specialties like neurology, cardiology, and nephrology, all of which are, are very important contributors to care in, for COVID-19 patients. And this contrast to, to I attended in, in the intensive care unit of another hospital here, here in the Bay Area. And when I'm there at that hospital during the pandemic, when I was there during the summer, they would have at most maybe 30 COVID-19 patients in the hospital. There were about at most three to five critically ill or intensive care unit COVID-19 patients. But I also had a, a team, a team of residents, fellows, and, and other doctors that were helping me um, to, to care for the, those limited number of patients. And I also had much more access to consultations from uh, other services. So it was quite a contrast between the situation working in the ICU there from my home base here in the Bay Area. We're running from code to code all day. Uh, we, we had uh, multiple patients die a day. Um, it was, uh, we had young patients who were critically ill, pe people in their 20s and 30s. It was uh, a very uh, difficult experience. Um, we had, <clears throat> in terms of other resources that were limited at that hospital, um, we, we, of course, had limited ICU beds. We had to, they had to make um, makeshift ICUs on the wards of the hospital um, in other areas of the hospital that normally don't provide, don't serve as intensive care units. We had limited ventilators. So we had to use what are called transport ventilators. These are these small ventilators that are very, very limited in what you can do with them. We had limited medications that we normally use to treat, uh, to sedate, and uh, otherwise care for critically ill patients. We had no uh, midazolam. We had no fentanyl. We had no vecuronium or cisatricurium. So we had to substitute other medicines that are more difficult to, to use in those circumstances. We did not have any dexamethasone, um, which was the drug that... Um, had been shown to improve outcomes in COVID-19 patients. So we substituted another agent. We had limited remdesivir and we had no ECMO. In other words, we had no basically life support where you put a patient on full life support with a cardiac bypass. And these disparities led to greater COVID-19 mortality. So Brownsville 
and Cameron County at the time had fourfold the case fatality rate that we had here in the Bay Area. At that time in August of last year in Cameron County, which is half the population of San Francisco, there were 629 deaths as compared to 72 deaths in San Francisco, which has twice the population. One thing that I want to make clear is that it's not these communities' fault. The communities, the people there were being very responsible. They were always wearing face masks. They weren't out throwing wild COVID-19 parties. They respected healthcare workers and the advice of healthcare workers. This is a picture of when I would come out of the hospital in the evenings, late evenings. There would be groups of people uh, singing, singing hymns and uh, trying to uplift the, the healthcare personnel there. It was very moving. I lost two friends to COVID when I was down there. This is uh, my friend, Joe. He, he taught me how to, how to fish and how to drink beer. So I left, I left Brownsville with very uh, mixed emotions. I, um, uh, I was relieved. Um, it, it was one of the, probably the most difficult work experience of my career. I was relieved to get back to the Bay Area to my normal work environment, and uh, but I felt guilty because uh, I knew that uh, there was a severe shortage of, of doctors there to help, and uh, that the um, there was there was help was not uh, in in sight. There was it was at least a few weeks away that other doctors were going to be able to come out. So um, I proposed, I wrote this article and I made some uh, proposals uh, about how to deal with this issue of under-resourced communities and uh, their lack of access to, um, to medical care and to um, specifically to uh, deal with surge capacity. And this, this article basically describes that there, there's basically a three-week window in which you can address major surge need. So when, when communities start, this was, again, back in the, the summer and fall, you would note a, an increase in positive tests in the community. And then from that point on, you have about a three-week window to, to get help to get them help in terms of critical care surge support about two weeks after they they start having community testing increased prevalence you're going to see patients admitted to the hospital and then about week a week after that is when they're going to start showing up in the intensive care unit the current fema system was not designed at all to deal with with the covid-19 pandemic it was really designed to deal with regional disasters like hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, and things like that, just localized to one region. The FEMA, the FEMA system cons consisting of like military support, it plods too slowly. It just can't get to all these hotspots. What was needed, is needed, is a system that's regional and nimble. And so I proposed this, and I proposed this nationally as well, is developing teams of strike forces of physicians, nurses, and respiratory therapists that can quickly mobilize across the country to help these under-resourced hotspots. 
you would have to begin by identifying these communities in advance and looking at on a, on a map. And this is a map of right here is a map of poor communities in the country. And Brownsville here is, you know, in blue, of course, being a, a one of the poorer regions of the country. And so you have to plot that those regions on a map. You have to start screening those areas for increased COVID-19 testing prevalence and then develop supply bundles and develop these registries of strike forces of, uh, again, physicians, nurses, and respiratory therapists that can mobilize during that three-week window. Another factor, another thing to consider is that you have to develop a credentialing system for waivers so, so such that a doctor from California can easily go to um, Texas and help out. <clears throat> All right, so I wanna go get to the phase three of my year in, in the pandemic. And uh, this is um, the um, phase of hope. Um, and that started for me, I, I would say in about November and has continued through now. The November election brought new leadership and I'm trying not to get overly political here, but the new leadership took the pandemic seriously. I received a call uh, two days after the election by members of, of the Biden-Harris team and was asked to serve on, the, uh, on their COVID-19 advisory team, advisory board, alongside with a, a number of outstanding physicians, including the current Surgeon General, Atul Gawande and, and a number of other remarkable people. And from our first meetings with the administration, with the, the president and, and, the, and those teams, uh, it was clear that they uh, wanted to, that this was a, the number one priority, that they were going to start taking it seriously and, um, you know, and really uh, try and turn this around. Um, <clears throat> so. Over the past, since November and, you know, and over the past month, months, uh, we have better testing. We have, um, we've also, in terms of med medications, we have some, some new antibody therapies and other treatment regimens. We have a much more organized response um, to deal with uh, uh, surges and with other issues. And most, and very importantly, obviously, most importantly, Vaccine distribution has been uh, uh, accomplished very, very well. But, however, we're not out of the woods. There are a number of remaining issues, and this, this is going to be the last part of my talk, which is I'm going to talk about uh, barriers to COVID-19 vaccination. As mentioned, the supply is better now, at least in the U.S. Um, delivery and administration is much, much better. You can get a vaccine just about any place in the country now, um, but we're still dealing with the, dealing with this problem of vaccine hesitancy. Again, my last topic is how to deal with the the issue of vaccine hesitancy, and specifically how we can address it through the emergency department. So the emergency department is the safety net of the safety net. It's where vulnerable populations go. It's often the only healthcare access site for a lot of people, 
their only place to go is uh, the emergency department. And this includes homeless persons, immigrants, uninsured. Uh, it really is the bottom line is the emergency department is the, the last, the ultimate safety net. And notably, African-Americans and, and Latinos get a disproportionate amount of care in emergency departments. And these groups have suffered at least two times the morbidity and mortality during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this leads to kind of the principle that in order to, to help these vulnerable populations who don't have access to health care, who can't just go online, they don't have, a lot of people don't have internet access. They can't go online and, and schedule an appointment for a COVID-19 vaccine. You've got to go where they, they go. And so you have to deliver interventions in the emergency department and uh, develop ED emergency department-based COVID-19 vaccination programs. So we did this study in 15 emergency departments across the country. We looked at 2,300 emergency department patients and we asked them about their vaccine healthcare access, their uh, hesitancy to get the COVID vaccine, and also questions about their mask wearing practice. And what we found was that 20% of respondents in this survey study, their only healthcare access is, is in emergency departments. And most of these, two thirds of these were African-American and Latino. Two big points about this was that 44%, a much higher percent of these, these patients were vaccine hesitant. They were afraid to get the vaccine. But those who would accept the vaccine, the vast majority of them, 94% of them, said they would accept it in the emergency department as part of their care. And this is a graph of the individual sites and the, their COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy it did vary across the sites um, from the lowest being at Parnassus Hospital. San Francisco General was right in the middle. And then the highest rate of vaccine hesitancy was at, in Camden, New Jersey. And the reasons that they were hesitant to get the vaccine was their concerns about side effects. They didn't believe vaccines would work. They didn't want to be the first to get a vaccine. Distrust of healthcare systems. And then in the immigrant population, there's this fear about, um, you know, providing too much information and whether that information would be shared with ICE or other organizations. So my final points are that uh, we should consider addressing vaccine hesitancy and barriers to vaccination, to COVID-19 vaccination in the emergency department. We need to be, as emergency physicians, trusted messengers for these patients we should try to provide the vaccine in the emergency department, but if we can't, we should tell them where they can get it and even set up appointments if we can, if uh, that's available. Um, we should assure, assure immigrants that they are safe from discovery and deportation uh, before getting a vaccine. So my last uh, slide is about summer and moving on. Um, as mentioned, I, I do have a, a, a grant to address vaccine hesitancy through the emergency department. I'm working with a team of multiple other individuals. We're looking to try and develop a COVID-19 pandemic commission. Um, and I think we need to really 
push to treat COVID-19 as a more of a global issue. These are hotspots across the world, and many countries are where we are last summer now and are, are undergoing severe surges. And so we really have to, to support those other countries with vaccination. And this is my last slide, and thanks. Well, thank you so much, Rob. Um, um, that was really uh, moving, and uh, I knew it would be, and um, it was really terrific. So thank you so much for doing it. Um, thank you. And thank you for all the work you've done. It was uh, really quite remarkable. The, um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, one, the first one came in uh, from the audience. Um, the, the, the first study you showed, or the, maybe it was the second, uh, about the experience of uh, physicians, clinicians, I guess it was the second one, clinicians in the emergency department had the gender differences. Uh, and I wonder if you had any hypotheses as to why that was the case. Yeah, that's a great question. We, we, we looked into that a little bit further, and, um, and it, 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 it's thought to be because of increased responsibilities at, at home, perhaps the, the dual, uh, the greater caregiving responsibilities that, um, that uh, women typically have. Um, that that was one of the reasons that was uh, thought thought to for for that to occur, and that that gender difference is uh, has been reproduced in in pe other people looking at that same subject, but it it, it is a complicated issue. In an analogous line, um, I know your study focused on emergency physicians. But did you pick up any signals about other specialties and um, uh, not and not necessarily the ones who you would expect? You would think, I mean, one thing about emergency physicians is that it's the most stressful of our clinical environments in most respects. And so in some ways, resilience may be particularly high, yet you saw so much stress. Uh, did you see similar stress in other high stress clinical environments? And also, did you look at lower stress environments in which people still might have experienced anxiety? Yeah, that's another great question. So <clears throat> we did actually look at a, a smaller sample of physicians in, in other uh, specialties. We looked at, um, we here at UCSF, we looked at uh, physicians in, in uh, let's say, fam family medicine, in obstetrics and and some of the surgical specialties, <clears throat> and we we they also noted increased stress during that early part of the phase of the pandemic. So it really is a, a, a we don't think that it's unique to to emergency medicine. It it really was a pervasive kind of feeling across uh, healthcare environments and. Um, a lot of it had to do, again, with unknowns in, during the early part of the pandemic and limited availability of PPE. And um, we also of note in one of the studies, we looked at people who, who did not have direct patient contact, um, people who were um, like clerks and, and things like that in, in the emergency department. And they noted uh, similar similar stress. Um, so it, it, it's a pervasive uh, phenomenon, 
And, uh, you know, I think that, again, it uh, now that people are vaccinated, it, it's it's been a great, great relief. In that context, not so much the vaccine context, but the stress context, um, uh, by the time you got to Brownsville, I mean, it's, it, and you, you implied this, it, I mean, it, it sounds like you were experiencing what people are experiencing still uh, around many parts of the, of the planet. Um, and, and what happened to your own anxiety? That, I mean, it was already, it already must have been really high. Um, did it go higher or did you just sort of hit some, go through some stages of acceptance or um, how did you experience being there when you were so isolated and alone? I, I, uh, to be honest, I, I was overwhelmed. I was, uh, I, um, you know, I, it was a deeply personal uh, experience for me. I had, I had friends again that I, that I had lost there. It was, you know, it was my, I was born in that hospital. Um, and so, and it was a very, uh, um, you know, I wanted to stay at my, my dad's house, which was uh, a, less than a mile from the hospital, but I didn't want to expose him. And, and so like I was, it, it was, it was my anxiety in short, my anxiety was went escalated quite a bit, and uh, it was a, a very difficult experience for me. I, um, yeah, I didn't. Um, not trying to not trying to be uh, melodramatic, but it was just uh, uh, on a personal level and a, a work level, just many times over uh, uh, a, an extremely difficult anxiety-provoking experience. I'm sorry, just the, even hearing it is moving, and um, I'm sorry you went through that, but you accomplished so much on behalf of so many, so thank you for that. Uh, let's move to something less moving. One question uh, about PPE. There were, um, uh, we all remember that those first early phases when PPE was the uh, topic of conversation, is uh, the questioner asks, are there any ways to uh, estimate uh, how many uh, excess deaths there were related to um, poorly used, poor use or poor supply of PPE? Uh, and secondly, is where do we stand now in terms of supply chains and, uh, and the way we're managing PPE? And I guess you get at a third part, which is uh, what's happening around the rest of the globe around uh, PPE issues. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can answer the the U.S. supply chain question first, and and we we uh, are now well stocked in terms of PE, PPE. It's not; it's no longer an issue. And in fact, um, there may be, you know, we, we are prob- probably able to stockpile some PPE. Uh, in terms of globally, on the other hand. It's still a problem in 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 poor poorer countries. It's not uh, just like the vaccine and and other other issues. Uh, it, it it it's it remains an issue in terms of with regard to how many excess deaths resulted from that. 
Uh, I, I don't know that that uh, we'll ever get an answer to that. I think that uh, there certainly were some. Um, and we are actually in the final stages of another study <clears throat> uh, looking at our, our exposure as emergency physicians, excess exposure, and, and we, we will have the results of that within the next month. Um, it'll, uh, and so uh, there are particular, we will be able to d- report on excess ex- exposures, cases, and even deaths, but whether those were whether we can attribute those to lack of PPE or not, it's 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 complicated. So I'm not sure we will ever get an answer to that. Um, there's a, a question of the day um, that um, has come up, not so much in uh, our region, but uh, elsewhere around the country, almost every, many other places around the country, about incentives for. Uh, vaccines and uh, and actually and then restrictions placed on people who don't get vaccines. So sort of both sides of that uh, related to uh, incentives and lotteries, uh, as and also vaccine passports and especially the racial and ethnic uh, aspects of passports in particular. Yeah. So um, the incentives, I think, you know, I. I'm fine with those. I think, you know, I think it's good to be creative and uh, anything that we can do to, to, to get people to get, to accept the vaccine, I'm okay with. Um, It's a little, uh, I don't know, I guess, I don't know if disheartening is the right word, but it's a little bit disappointing, I guess, that we that we have to do that when and um there are other people in other countries that are just begging to 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 get a chance to get the vaccine um i don't know i mean uh but i think i'm 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 okay with all all of the uh sort of incentives to get the vaccine um in terms of the passports that's a tricky issue. You know, I think that, uh, I think that for, I think that for, for certain, like, let's say air travel or, or, or things like that, I think companies should be allowed to, to make a, a requirement. I, I think, but I don't know in terms of like other, like, I don't think that it should be carried to to an excess in terms of like limiting whether somebody can go to a, a national park or something like that. I don't know. It's a, it's a very, tr- that's a very tricky issue. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, that, it, it, it should be, it sort of depends on what you're wanting the passport for. Well, especially if there are structural issues like racial and ethnic uh, class issues that determine who gets a, who has more hesitancy, say. Uh, and then if, if you're then discriminating against people with more hesitancy, it's sort of a double whammy. Um, 
I mean, certainly some employers, including our own, is uh, mandating that people get vaccines. And um, so it is going to be a tricky thing. I mean, I wonder, what are your views in terms of the Latino community? I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that um, we need to be use uh, culturally appropriate messaging for various communities. I've been a part of uh, some PSAs for Unidos US, which is a, a, a very strong organization um, for Latinos. Um, I the grant that I received recently, we are going to be looking at um, Spanish speakers specifically and how how to address vaccine hesitancy in in those groups. Um, and we're going to be looking at, you know, all vulnerable populations. Um, it, the study, the proposal is at four sites. It's, we're the lead site here in San Francisco, but it's also going to be in, in Philadelphia, in Seattle and in, in North Carolina. And so um, we're going to take a serious look at what messaging works best and whether we can sort of provide that messaging and and perhaps provide vaccines through the emergency department, which is an underused sort of public health messaging center, a place for to, to provide messaging. Where does it stand now in terms? I assume you're talk, you're giving mostly uh, Johnson and Johnson. Uh, and what is the current state at, uh, say, at Zuckerberg and at, at Parnassus? And then sort of a subset of that is I've been arguing that it should also be in physicians' offices. Um, so I've had a number of patients where, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make the pitch. And if I had it right there and the nurse was there with me, you know, we're getting ready to go, I might have had a better shot than making an appointment. Uh, we're seeing, beginning to see it moving into pediatric offices, uh, which is great. I think. Um, just wonder your thoughts on on both of those. Yeah. So the J and J vaccine certainly has its its uh, is certainly optimal for emergency departments. You know, it, it's a one time shot. Um, it, it would uh, relieve the problem of having to schedule a second appointment. Um, you can get, give the vaccine while they're there for other reasons is, is, is the central premise behind, behind that thought. Um, it, uh, there was a pause on that and on the J and J vaccine. So, uh, you know, ED based vaccinations took a little bit of a hit with that. Now at, at the general, and I believe that Parnassus, I'm, I'm not quite sure what, what uh, this, the practice is at Parnassus, but at the general, now that there's a, a roving uh, vac- vaccine program, in other words, if, you're, if you have a patient in one of the clinics or if you have them in the emergency department um, and you want them to get vaccinated or they'll, they'll accept the vaccine, you can... Uh, call this number and they will come down and, and give them the, uh, I believe it's a, still the Pfizer vaccine. Um, uh, but uh, 
yeah, so that, you know, that's a great program. I think, uh, you know, it, it can get at, at all sites and, uh, and they can also keep, keep the records better than um, in a more systematic way. So I think, uh, again, like, as you said, moving into getting people vaccinated in, in offices is the way to go. And just really any, anywhere right. is, is the way to go. They, they uh, you know, I saw that, um, uh, you know, our, our vaccination program at, at uh, the Moscone Center and, and the, the programs run here in San Francisco are, have been an outstanding success. Um, kudos to all of those uh, people involved. A lot of them are, are in, in my department. Including Mary Mercer and 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 um, and Andrea Tenner, uh, Doctor Andrea Tenner, and so um, it's you know it, that's been a great program. I think that uh, yeah. Couple of last uh, questions. Um, let's see. Um, we heard a lot about institutions quote calling in the military. Uh, I don't know. Um, was that what part of what happened in Texas and? sort of implying, and where did the troops come from? Is that the FEMA uh, that you're talking about, or was it troops or volunteers like yourself? And what happened in Brownsville uh, after uh, your experience there? Yeah, so the, the FEMA is uh, typically um, military military doctors that, that are, uh, and nurses, and, and what they do is they will uh, send a group to different locations, um, the problem with that is that it, it again, it, 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 it's too slow. Um, by the time, by the time they showed up, they showed up about a month later, basically, at least three weeks later after, after I left. And, you know, the surge would, had already passed its peak such that a lot of people, you know, that it, it just, there was no place to, to care for the, for these patients. So um, they did, you know, they do come. Uh, the problem is that there, there were too many sites across the country, too many surge sites across the country and a, a limited number of, of uh, you know, military groups. And they're kind of there. It's it's just the system, again, it is, is too slow. It's not it would not it's not nimble enough to deal with the sites popping up all over the country and, you know, popping up rather, rather quickly. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think that we need something in addition to that. And, and there's been a, uh, a fair amount of, uh, response to that. And, um, yeah, I think that that idea is gaining traction. In that context, was there uh, just your own thinking? I won't put you on the spot politically, but um, did you encounter as people uh, uh, in the Biden administration were struggling with uh, what was going on around the country and, and developing systems? Was was there talk about uh, healthcare reform in that context in terms of whether it was Medicaid expansion or Medicare expansion or some other uh, payer changes? Um, what, what, what have we learned enough from this 
to do something like that? They, the, the, I could say that they are definitely, they definitely listened and they are deaf. There are definite plans to, to address that, the, uh, those issues. Um, the, the, a, a huge improvement or a huge point of, um, the Biden Harris initial response and continued response is addressing disparities and uh, addressing uh, healthcare disparities across the country. And so, so uh, in fact, the, you know, uh, that would, I, that is what I, I would say their number one priority beyond and in conjunction with the pandemic. So um, I can, uh, I can attest to the fact that they're, they're, they're listening and that those issues are, are, are being addressed. Maybe one last uh, philosophic question, uh, sort of crystal ball uh, question, given how, how good things are, have been here in the last couple of months here being the United States, uh, say, um, and how uh, challenging they are in, um, in India and Brazil and still other parts of the, of the world. What's your prediction um, in terms of are the systems that you're talking about for here relevant and implementable uh, f- through the WHO or internationally, things like that? I think that it's, that it, it's problematic I think the 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 um, what works what is working here is not going to necessarily work in in India or Brazil from from a systems standpoint. What I do think would work and what is necessary is is just vaccinations, just vaccinating every, everybody across across the globe. That's really the the only, you know, our our systems are so different. Our medical health care systems are so different. Where we, as you know, are are very privileged here in the United States in terms of, you know, we we uh, can get patients now. You know, just about any patient that needs an ICU can can get an ICU bed now, and and that's been the case for most of the pandemic other than, you know, those surge times, um, other countries, you know, they, they, they just, they can't get that level of intensive care. So you really have to, you really have to hit it at the, at the, at the source, you have to get everybody vaccinated. And so if I were to invest anything from the WHO standpoint, and if I, and if I were in charge of like distributing funds from the U.S. and and every and other countries, I would push just getting vac- more vaccine, more vaccine, more vaccine. All right. Well, I think that's probably a great note to end on. Um, uh, we are going to talk uh, from various angles about vaccines a lot more next week and the week after for those uh, listening in. Um, but I think. Uh, um, 
the the personal nature of the the presentation tonight with uh, in combination with the evidence uh, and the policy was really quite moving and remarkable and I really want to thank you Rob um, you know when we named this course we were thinking scientifically uh, but we really should have focused more on the heroism because it really uh, the work that you've done and some of our other speakers over the last uh, few weeks has really just been remarkable to hear. And uh, I know everyone in the audience will join me in thanking you very much. If we were live, um, you get a rousing a round of uh, applause and appreciation. And uh, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for everything you've been doing and continue to do. And uh, it's great to have you a member of the UCSF community. And um, I really appreciate you doing this tonight. I, I loved it. I, it's, it's always uh, great to see you, Bobby, and, and I, I totally appreciate the chance to, to talk about this. Well, thank, thank you. Thanks so much. Stay safe and be well. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.